Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today, and you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. And by the way, we now have a merchandise shop on our website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Michael Dedora is director of the Center for Inquiry's Office of Public Policy, and he's also CFI's representative to the United Nations. He's currently the president of the UN's NGO Committee on Freedom of Religion or Belief. Michael, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for inviting me on the show. I'm glad to be here. So one of the things I really want to talk to you about is what's going on with atheists internationally, because I don't know, over the past year or so, we've seen so many people who are either outspoken atheists or even accused of blasphemy who have been imprisoned or killed. And I'm wondering, this is something you deal with on a regular basis. So first of all, can you tell us kind of what you do with the U.N. and your work there? And then we'll talk more specifics about what's going on in other countries. Absolutely. So the Center for Inquiry's Office of Public Policy is the program of the organization dedicated to advancing its interests in secularism, science, and rationality in particularly areas of, of law and public policy. And we work at the state level, and we work at the federal level, so I'm based in Washington, D.C., but a lot of our work is at the international level, and in particular, a lot of our work is through the United Nations program that we have. So uh, in the late 90s, the International Humanist and Ethical Union uh, was able to get consultative status at the U.N., which basically means that you're recognized as a nonprofit organization that can go there and engage in a lot of uh, the high-level human rights discussions. And a couple of years later, the Center for Inquiry followed. There actually have been several organizations which have followed uh, since then, including the British Humanist Association and Atheist Alliance International from getting their own consultative status. And so kind of mirrors the growth of the atheist community uh, more generally, that you have atheists and humanist organizations now being uh, represented at the United Nations. And a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the work that the Center for Inquiry does is uh, on atheists. Uh, and agnostics and humanists who are being either attacked in society or being imprisoned uh, and, and cracked down upon by their government because of their either lack of belief, uh, in some cases it's just an individual who's found out to be an atheist, or because of their expressions regarding religion. And so this could take the form of anything from a Facebook post uh, to more serious criticisms of religion. And so just you know, to give you two quick examples, uh, back 
2012, there was a very well-known case that the Friendly Atheist blog did a very good job of covering uh, the case of Alexander Ahn in Indonesia. And he got in trouble in Indonesia for posting some cartoons and, and thoughts on Facebook after he was leaving his religion of Islam. Uh, but more recently, we've had an uptick in, in religious extremism in Bangladesh, and you have Islamic extremist groups going after uh, not necessarily people who are drawing cartoons, but people who are actually engaging in really serious criticisms of religion. So Abhijit Roy, who wrote uh, 10 books in, in, in Bangla, uh, was you know, hacked to death earlier this year, and several other writers have followed since then. And so there are a number of different ways in which uh, nonprofit organizations like the Center for Inquiry and some of our, our allies engage uh, on this issue. And one of them is through you know, direct lobbying, and so that could be in the form of going to the State Department or going to any other foreign government and asking them to take this issue more seriously and maybe use some of their diplomatic pressure um, to lean on, you know, a government that's not respecting human rights. Uh, another might be some kind of direct engagement with that government. Obviously, that engagement will depend on uh, what kind of country you're dealing with. Directing government, uh, direct engagement with a government like Bangladesh or Indonesia uh, might be one thing, direct engagement with a government like Saudi Arabia, probably not going to get you anywhere. Uh, so that, you know, shows the importance of that first option of, of diplomatic engagement. But then also, uh, again, through the United Nations, there's the ability for NGOs like ours to hold some of these governments' feet to the fire about their human rights record before the world community. And so there, there are a lot of different things that, uh, that secular and atheist NGOs are doing on these, on these issues. Have things gotten worse in countries like Bangladesh, or did we just not know about what was going on? Because we see uh, Bangladeshi blogger after blogger, it seems, getting hacked to death lately. Is this a new phenomenon? You know, it depends on which country you're talking about. With, with Bangladesh, no doubt about it, the situation has gotten much worse. The human rights situation in Bangladesh has never been necessarily stable. Uh, but it's been better and worse at times. And really over the past two years, and especially over the past year, there's been a serious worsening of the human rights situation there. And so there have been attacks in the past, uh, dating back to like the early 2000s, on intellectuals, poets, bloggers, people that expressed criticism of religion in Bangladesh, but there was never any coordinated uh, sense of these attacks. There was never the idea that these were happening in secession and, and, and that there was a real plan to them. Um, now that's what you're starting to see, and and what's in, even more disturbing about this is that uh, while there have been kind of homegrown terror groups, homegrown Islamic extremist groups in Bangladesh, uh, Ansarullah Bangladesh is one of them. Now, in the past year, you have Al Qaeda uh, in the Indian subcontinent, and more recently, in the past couple weeks, ISIS claiming uh, responsibility for some of these attacks. Now. This is something that hopefully the, the world community wakes up to because, you know, homegrown terrorism in Bangladesh is one thing. But when you have ISIS, which is a, a big concern on Capitol Hill here and more broadly in the United States, uh, you know, we're hoping that some Americans wake up to, to the spread of Islamic extremism throughout, throughout the world. So there's no doubt that the situation in Bangladesh is getting worse, and it's getting worse for, for everyone. There have been attacks not just on, you know, atheists, uh, bloggers, but even more recently, the the last attack that happened about a month ago in Bangladesh was on a publisher, where actually there were two publishing houses that were attacked, but one publisher was left dead, and that publisher was a Muslim, who just happened to believe that his religion should be able to stand up to some open criticism. Um, and then more recently, in the last couple of weeks, you've had attacks on foreign nationals in the country, 
you know, you have terror groups that are really trying to stir discord and, and, um, and unrest in the country. Uh, you have death threats against Christian priests. You have attacks on Hindu communities and their holy sites. So it's, it's a problem that isn't even affecting just one particular community, but it's affecting every single religious and non-religious community. Now, more broadly, you know, throughout the world, it's difficult to really get a gauge on whether things are getting better or worse because you have, a, you know, an instance in Bangladesh where it seems like things are getting worse. Um, you know, but then you have a country like, say, Tunisia, which, you know, recently uh, kind of, uh, you know, instituted a secular constitution and has made a lot of changes uh, towards towards progress for respect for human rights. And so, you know, we, we what I think a lot of the atheists and, and secular and humanist NGOs are trying to do is uh, find those good examples like Tunisia and maybe hold them up as an example for for a country like Bangladesh. So in Bangladesh in particular, there uh, I don't know if there's a rumor if this is actual. There, there's supposed to be like a hit list of I don't know how many, like 80 people on there who are 84, 84 yeah. people who terrorists may go after. When when you hear about that, when you see that list, is there anything a group like CFI or the UN can do to help those people, or is it just oh man, we we better get. Uh, we just better be prepared because this is going to happen soon again. Is there anything you can do? Absolutely. So the the list of 84, which you mentioned, came out in 2013. And that was when you really started to see uh, a reinvigoration of Islamic extremism in Bangladesh. When you saw uh, Jamaati Islami, which is a, a radical Islamic group in Bangladesh, marching through the streets demanding that, you know, blasphemy and apostasy be punished for death and that women, you know, be required to wear the hijab and, and things of that nature. Um, and at that time, there was a list of 84 bloggers and writers that came out. Interestingly enough, that list of 84 is somewhat misleading. Uh, it turns out that the terrorists are not very good at knowing uh, pen names and pseudonyms. So actually, there's maybe about half of that list uh is is accurate. Many of them were actually duplications of names, which I, I find interesting. And there have been there have been a lot of lists that have come out uh, since then. It's difficult to really know sometimes the validity of these lists, um, you know, because they keep coming out. There's different names on them. Sometimes they list people that are just in Bangladesh. Sometimes they they list uh, Bangladeshis who have left the country. And one of the things that that we do is um, by directly engaging with with actors in the country with human rights activists in the country, with bloggers in the country, and also with activists and bloggers who are well-connected to the scene in Bangladesh but have left the country, maybe live in Europe or, or the United States now. Uh, by engaging with them, we can get really a good sense of who is at risk in the country. And so we don't necessarily need to rely on these you know, public uh, hit lists, but we can you know, mine down through the information and find out who's really at risk. And there are things that we can do. And so, uh, for example, through some of our direct diplomatic engagement with the United States government, some other government, uh, we've been able to identify people who are really at risk. You know, maybe they survived an extremist attack in Bangladesh, or maybe they're, you know, high on the list for the next one. And through some of the, the weight that those governments carry, they can they can sometimes help to provide some protection for those individuals. Uh, maybe they can engage the Bangladesh government to provide protection for those individuals. Um, but, the, you know, the hardest thing is for some of these individuals trying to relocate them either inside or outside of the country. And that's been a big effort of a lot of the NGOs that are working on Bangladesh right now, you know, especially the Center for Inquiry, which uh, earlier this year lost, lost something called the Free Thought Emergency Fund. 
And that, that is a fund dedicated to monetarily supporting individuals who are seeking to relocate either, again, within Bangladesh or outside of Bangladesh, but just don't have the means to do it. Uh, in some cases, the fund has been used to provide individuals who are at risk in Bangladesh with increased security, you know, either private security or, you know, private drivers so they don't have to walk through the streets of Bangladesh anymore. Uh, so there are a lot of different steps that, that can be taken to protect these individuals who are at risk in Bangladesh. This may be a personal question then. What goes through your mind when you hear another story of one of these bloggers getting murdered? It's hard to fathom being being a secularist in the United States, uh, having gone through, yes, yeah, some, some difficulties of my own. I was raised religiously um, and, and left religion uh, after college. But it's hard to fathom being at risk of of death, you know, of having to fear someone over your shoulder, maybe it's going to hack you to death at any moment because of your ideas or because of the expressions that you've made about, you know, disagreeing on religion. Uh, and so the reason why I got involved in, in particular in, in a lot of the policy and international human rights work that the Center for Inquiry does is because of my own personal experience. I went through this experience of being raised religiously and kind of deconverting through reading books and finding Center for Inquiry and other atheist and humanist you know, communities to engage with these people uh, and kind of find my way through the issues. And then to think that there are other individuals who are just like me, uh, other places in the world, uh, and just by virtue of them being other places of the world, the same thing that I was doing, they're doing in their country, but they're at risk of you know, being thrown in prison uh, or, or being attacked uh, by vigilantes in their society. So it's, it's, it's difficult for me to fathom that, to understand the motivations of individuals who'd, who'd want to hurt you just for you know writing a blog post or, or writing a book uh, that's critical of some ideas that you hold. And so, I, you know, again, I, like I said, it's a, it's a difficult thing for me to really process, but what I know is that there are all these individuals around the world, and they're not even necessarily all atheists and agnostics and humanists. Some of them are religious dissidents who are trying to reform their religion. And, you know, they're facing all kinds of violence and scrutiny because of this. And so, you know, the Center for Inquiry is an organization that's dedicated to the right uh, to free inquiry. And I'm a person that believes very deeply in that right. And so the one thing I know that we can do capacity-wise is provide some assistance to these individuals. So even if I can't necessarily get a grasp on you know the horror of the situation i can at least uh you know lend some some weight to help let me ask you about what's going on in saudi arabia uh there is a man there raif badawi who is uh, maybe he's i heard rumor that he might be freed soon but for like the past year he's been theoretically getting punished with like a thousand lashes and and a monetary fine for things he wrote about Islam. And here's my question about that. There is so much, like, international support for this guy. And government officials are aware of what he's going through. I mean, the Canadian government, especially where his family is, I mean, they've been trying to do something about this too. With all this international support, how come this guy is still there? Is it just because the Saudi government is, like, impenetrable? Why can't we just get this guy out of there? It's actually uh, the case of Raif Badawi is one of these difficult situations in which uh, the more attention that's been brought onto, onto his case, 
the better uh, it is for him in terms of his own safety. It makes it very difficult for the Saudi government to carry out their punishments. So, for example, after uh, his first uh, set of lashing, because he's done to a thousand lashes along with his 10 years in prison, and they carried out the first 50, which I think were carried out about three days after the attacks on Charlie Hebdo magazine, a very bad time for the Saudi government to enact that punishment uh, because it, it raised all kinds of international uproar, and they have not uh, lashed right since. Now, that is a result, a direct result of widespread international outrage about his case and about you know the video that leaked onto YouTube of that. On the other hand, the Saudi government is is uh, the Saudi monarchy is of the mindset they really don't like being criticized. They really don't like being shamed in public. Uh, the Center for Inquiry has called them out at the United Nations on the floor of the Human Rights Council. And there have been several times, one in particular, where they tried to shout us down and, and prevent us from making statements about their human rights records. So it's, it's a difficult situation in which the more public attention is on Rice's case, the better off he is in terms of his safety while in prison in Saudi Arabia. But it also makes it somewhat more difficult for the Saudi government to really turn around and say, we're going to pardon this guy now, in particular because the more international attention there is, the more attention there is to the case within Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is not necessarily like some of the countries that we talk about that have gone through uh, some of the revolutions in recent years uh, that that um, have strong a strong presence in the country of, of re reformed uh, individuals or, or individuals who are dedicated to a reformed or more liberal sense of Islam, um, there has been a lot of talk within Saudi Arabia and within diplomatic circles about how the monarchy is very frightened, you know, to be frank, that if they pardon people like Reich Fidelli, what would happen to the monarchy? Would there be a revolution in the country? And that kind of revolution would not come from individuals who are happy that Reich is being pardoned. They would be individuals who are saying, what are you doing? You're letting an infidel go free. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very difficult situation, you know, in terms of all the PR and in terms of you're dealing with, you know, you said it very well. It's just an impossible nut to crack. I think Saudi Arabia is a very difficult nut to crack. They don't, they don't kind of listen to international pressure in the same way that you know, a couple of years ago, you remember the woman in the, in the Sudan who was a, uh, arrested for apostasy and ended up delivering a, a child in, in prison, she was released and brought to the United States because the United States and other governments have a lot of, you know, weight that they can lean on the Sudan with that they can't necessarily use on, on or at least they feel they can't use on Saudi Arabia. So uh, one of the things that we have been doing at the Center for Inquiry is just kind of knowing that the United States government has a very... Uh, interesting relationship with Saudi Arabia going to some other governments, like you mentioned the Canadian government, and leaning on them and saying if the U.S. government, you know, can't really engage in forceful advocacy on this, even though I, I do think they're bringing up Reich's case, I just don't think that they're engaging in it forcefully enough, but maybe some of the other governments can. And there has been some hope, you know, Germany and some of the other governments have really stepped up their their game on this, and now there are some rumors that maybe Reich will get a pardon. Um, I haven't been able to confirm any of those those rumors, but um, I think that if he is pardoned, it's, it's no doubt a result of the international pressure which has been applied from you know tons of different civil society and non-governmental groups, and, and including many of many of the people that read your blog.
So for all of our talk of religious freedom in this country, what is our government doing or, you know, anything at all to protect atheists overseas? So there are a couple different ways that the U.S. government uh, does work to protect atheists, agnostics, humanists um, overseas. The I would say the the main uh, part of the U.S. government that is involved in this kind of work is the Office of International Religious Freedom, which is within the State Department. And it was created in 1998, and it's currently headed by uh, David Saperstein, who is the ambassador for international religious freedom. And that body or that, that department within uh, the State Department uh, engages with foreign governments, issues reports, um, engages in you know, direct uh, conversations with with other governments that that are oppressing atheists and and they're they're an office that has been very receptive to dialogue and discussion with groups like the Center for Inquiry. We've met with them. Uh, I was actually just in there the other day with Bon Ahmed, who is uh, obviously Roy's widow. And they've also, you know, met with us before with the American Humanist Association and the Secular Coalition, and they're very concerned about what's going on with atheists uh, abroad who are being who are being persecuted and thrown in prison or being attacked. And so they've, you know, issued a number of public statements. Like I said, they've engaged with other governments on this, um, and they've been very reliable. They've been very reliable actors. You know, the the broad the broader State Department has also engaged on a number of different issues, but it's been a little more difficult to get the broader State Department really to incorporate, uh, you know, ideas of atheists being persecuted or, or cases of atheists being persecuted into their broader work for a lot of other different reasons that are, you know, more politically charged. Um, the other body that I would, would mention uh, as part of the U.S. government, it's kind of a quasi-independent body called the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and that was also created in 1998 by the same act of Congress uh, that created the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom, and they track about 30 countries around the world, and they issue reports, and they also directly engage uh, with governments through embassies and things like that, uh, issue public statements, write op-eds in newspapers and, and uh, things of that sort, and They've also been very engaged on atheist issues. They've also met with a lot of atheist groups down here, like, again, the Center for Inquiry, Secular Coalition, uh, to kind of hear about what we're doing on the ground, what we know about the situation on the ground in many countries where atheists are, are being attacked or being imprisoned. Um, again, to have, you know, kind of a reliable set of information about that and then to engage with other governments and to speak about these things publicly. Um, there's also some activity in Congress, although this has been really slow going. When I first came down to Washington, D.C. in 2012, it didn't really seem like Congress cared about uh, cases of atheists being attacked or persecuted uh, and imprisoned. And it seems like over the past three years, in particular with the growth of the Center for Inquiry's Office of Public Policy, with the Secular Coalition, with the American Humanist Association, and now the American atheists uh, have Amanda Kniep down here doing lobbying for them. Uh, there's been some real traction in Congress to include cases of atheists who are being persecuted or imprisoned uh, or attacked in their countries in resolutions about international religious freedom. And so that really just kind of helps to put these issues and these cases on the consciousness of policymakers in the United States. And obviously, we hope that in the long run, that helps uh, the U.S. government to address these issues more seriously. So some of the criticism I've heard then is, okay, they'll pass a resolution that says, you know, this is horrible, we condemn this, but it's all just kind of talk. Like, what does that actually help with? 
So the resolutions themselves are, don't have any you know teeth. They're not uh, binding resolutions. So it's true that the resolutions are, in a way, just talk. But I can tell you that uh, that talk can go quite a way in getting uh, foreign governments to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, so just the other day, actually, it was uh, yesterday, uh, I was on, on Capitol Hill with Bon Ahmed, and we did a, a briefing on human rights in Bangladesh. And part of that briefing was talking about a House resolution uh, introduced by Representative Tulsi Gabbard out of Hawaii on human rights in Bangladesh and calling on the government to respect human rights and names Abhishek Roy um, and a couple of the other cases. And that'll actually, that bill will be moving up uh, through the House hopefully in the next couple of weeks, if not in the next couple of months. And at this briefing, we're talking about this this resolution, and I think, you know, in part the resolution allowed this briefing to happen because it, it raised awareness about the, the situation in Bangladesh uh, in Congress, and so it made it more feasible for, the, for you know, for us to hold kind of a public uh, event on this. And the Bangladesh Embassy sent their deputy ambassador to the event uh, afterwards to kind of, you know, correct the narrative, if you will, of some of the speakers on the panel, including Bona. Um, and so even though a lot of the stuff that's going on related to Bangladesh right now in Congress is just talk, it still is getting the attention of the Bangladesh government, which is a, a very good thing. And then the other thing is that even though it's only talk right now, um, what I would remind people is that this talk wasn't even happening three or four years ago. We weren't getting included in a lot of these conversations three or four years ago. It was impossible for us to really find sponsors for briefings three or four years ago. And the hope is that this increased talk and along with it, the recognition that secularist and humanist groups are not just these little niche groups that Congress can ignore anymore, but represent a significant portion of the population. Uh, that because of these things, that Congress will take up more formative work on the issues. So the first step might be just a resolution calling out Bangladesh on their human rights abuses. The next step might be a formal hearing, maybe in the Senate, about you know the presence of ISIS in Bangladesh. And then the next step could be more formal discussions about, well, what's the relationship to the U.S. and Bangladesh right now? Is there anything that we can kind of lean on them with in terms of trading, economic uh, partnerships and things like that to get them to address Islamic extremism more seriously in their country and protect the rights of of religious minorities and non-religious minorities. So the talk is is a, is a step of progress, and hopefully it will be a step of progress to even you know better outcomes. So the UN includes representatives from countries like Saudi Arabia and China and other places where religious freedom is basically a joke. Uh, what are your water cooler conversations like with the representatives from those people? Do you oh, have any interaction with them? Brief <laughs> conversations. Um, actually, it was kind of an interesting experience uh, for me at the the last session of the Human Rights Council. I had run down after delivering a statement on the floor of the Human Rights Council about uh, human rights in Saudi Arabia, and I was ducking into a conversation about freedom of religion or belief, in particular this resolution. Uh, that the UN was um, was considering, and uh, I just so happened as I ran into the room to sit next to uh, the representative from Saudi Arabia, who <laughs> was the one who a couple of years ago shouted down and interrupted several times our representative uh, of the Center for Inquiry, who was reading out a statement critical of Saudi Arabia's human rights records. So I couldn't let the opportunity, uh, you know 
pass itself up. And, and so after the, the event was over, I turned to him and, uh, and I said, excuse me, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm the representative of the Center for Inquiry. We're an American-based uh, NGO that advances secular values. And he turned to me and he smiled and he introduced himself and, and said that he was with the, the Saudi mission. And I said to him, uh, you know, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, our engagement and criticism of Saudi human rights record on the floor of the Human Rights Council is not meant to, like, embarrass you or shame you. Um, you know, we're not here doing, you know, you know political one-upmanship. We're really concerned because we represent people in Saudi Arabia, such as Raif Badawi, who is going through an awful time. And we're concerned about his well-being and we think that people, you know, rights should be protected. And he smirked and he said, well, you have every right to do that. And they turned around and walked away. Uh, so, <laughs> Damn. so, and then he, and then you know, it's not like we're sitting down for coffee anytime soon. I mean, a lot of these member states, the more extreme ones like Saudi Arabia, for example, are not really engaging in in dialogue with the civil society groups that are that are criticizing on the floor. I will give some credit though to some of the other countries for at least having representatives that are somewhat more opening somewhat more open to listening to civil society groups. So uh, Egypt, a pretty bad human rights record, but their representatives in Geneva are self-approachable to having conversations. And these conversations are always somewhat tense because you're dealing with a country that is either in denial about its human rights record or has a, you know, a radically different view of the world than any Western-based secularist uh, advocacy organization. And so necessarily it becomes very difficult to nav navigate those conversations and you have to be somewhat careful about what you say to not necessarily offend the person that you're talking to. But, um, you know, it, 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 it's difficult and a lot of it is based on what that particular country is going through at the time um, that would make them more or less susceptible to dialogue. I have one last question for you, Michael. Uh, with While atheists seem to be getting persecuted more in recent years in certain countries— I wonder if they're also growing stronger in any way. Is there more solidarity among these atheist writers, bloggers, publishers? Has the internet made it better for them? Because they all know what we're all going through, what they're all going through, and so they kind of band together. Is that happening? The internet has, has absolutely changed the way in which atheists and humanists and agnostics and, and even skeptics and, and others who are interested in this broader community, it's definitely changed the way in which they can communicate with one another. And so, you know, it's gone from 15, 20 years ago to, um, you know, if you were getting involved in this kind of stuff, you know, for example, in the, in the Bengali region, you had Mukta Mona, which was the, the blog or, or rather the Yahoo discussion group that Abhijit Roy began in 2001 to connect free thinkers in that area. Um, you know, but that, at that point, the only thing you could do really was really engage in this discussion group and maybe you would trade phone numbers or something like that. But now it's to the point where, you know, you have Twitter, you have Facebook, you have Skype, you have FaceTime, um, any, anyone anywhere in the world who has a connection to the internet can almost immediately connect with someone else, someone else, um, somewhere else in the world, you know, perhaps on the other side of the world. And so, um, now you have atheists in Turkey communicating with atheists in Egypt, uh, but also atheists in Saudi Arabia and atheists in Indonesia and atheists here in the United States. And they can do all that in one single day and get a really good idea of maybe some best practices for some of the work that they're doing, or maybe they can get some you know insight on how to defend themselves against crackdown on their rights. And it, it's, 
you know, beyond just kind of like atheists at the grassroots connecting, it's also made the job of secularist organizations like the Center for Inquiry a lot easier because, you know, there are instances in which I've spoken to people who are in prison somewhere else in the world and they get a phone call or, you know, they can get access to the internet through, you know, maybe a bootleg phone or something like that. Um, they can, I can connect with them. So I can speak with these, you know, in the jail cell where they are in the country and get a, you know, precise idea of exactly what's going on, which is very helpful in our advocacy and very helpful, you know, passing that information back to people at the state department. So the internet and, and cellular technology has, has radically changed the way in which, you know, communications are happening at the grassroots, but also communications are happening from the grassroots up to the more formal institutions, which can help individuals at the grassroots to protect their rights. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for sharing all that with us. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, if there's anyone who's interested in these issues, what do you suggest they can do to help out or how can they get in touch? Well, uh, at risk of having a full email box, I would tell people uh, to email me. If you if you just Google my name, you can find my email on the Center for Inquiry's website, but it's uh, mdora, my last name, at centerforinquiry.net. And there's, you know, there's a lot of different stuff that's going on. Some of it necessarily has to happen behind the scenes, somewhat quietly, to protect you know the, the identities of individuals and organizations uh, who are engaged in this. But you know, I would urge individuals right now uh, in particular, given the crisis in Bangladesh, to look up the Center for Inquiry's Free Thought Emergency Fund, and if there's anything they can, you know, anything they can give to support that fund, uh, that would be a tremendous help because we're dealing with a situation in which we have a lot of people in Bangladesh who are looking for security or looking to relocate either again within the country or outside of the country. Um, you know, and some of them have families, and, and many of them are very young, and they're, and they're very smart. Most of them are, you know, PhD or master's students. So, you know, it's a it's a very tricky situation, and any support in that regard would help. The other thing I would say, because not everyone I know can can get involved financially, uh, a very simple thing that people can do is, you know, there's a House Resolution 396 that's in the House, and one of the things we've been telling people or asking people to do is, you know, pick up the phone. Call your U.S. representative or your U.S. senator and say, I heard that there's a House resolution on human rights in Bangladesh. As a secularist here in the United States, I'm very concerned with the right to free speech, right to freedom of you know, belief and expression. And I would love for you to co-sponsor this, this resolution or if you're in the Senate to introduce it um, you know, as a companion bill. I think that is a, is a very easy way, a very simple way that people at the grassroots across the United States could get involved in supporting uh, the human rights of individuals halfway across the world. Awesome. We'll have links to that all in the show notes then for people who are interested. Thank you again for your time, Michael. Sure. Thank you, Ahmed. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.